Welcome to Ottawa Valley Vineyard, where we simply want to help you encounter Jesus, be transformed, and share his love. Cool. So we thought uh, this Sunday, especially talking about baptism and uh, really, I mean, for so many of us, this uh, experience of faith is something that uh, really captures our hearts. Uh, people come to Jesus uh, from different perspectives. There are people who would come to faith uh, starting at, in an intellectual place and that kind of investigation. Uh, there are lots of people who would come to faith with a heart connection. That's something that we know all the time is people will sort of uh, come in the door of the church and they'll attend for uh, a couple of times and they'll begin to sort of uh, feel a sense of the presence of God when we're here gathered. Feel a sense of, uh, of his warmth, a sense of his love. Sometimes people will experience that in nature and, and other places. But there's a way in which God reveals uh, himself to us in a way that's tangible, in a way that sort of touches us on the inside. Um, and a lot of you have had that experience as a part of the Christian journey, is knowing that in the very center of you, in the center of who you are, that God has, uh, has made himself real to you, that you have an authentic experience uh, with him. Him. So that's where some of us start our journey, and some of us start uh, with uh, questions and are looking for evidence. Um, if you will just, uh, I've just took a screenshot of my, of my laptop, but you can do it at home or wherever, but if you just type into Google what happens, it will auto-correct to when you die. It'll auto-fill that in. What happens when you die? What happens uh, after death? What happens in Vegas comes number three, <laughs> and various other uh, questions like that, right? Uh, what happens when you quit smoking? What happens when you block someone on Instagram, right? So these are the top questions. What happens when you die, and then what happens when you block someone on Instagram? These are the questions that, uh, that plague us. And you can actually have a lot of fun with this. With Google, you can put in, I wish my husband would. Anybody ever done that? I wish my husband would die is what comes up, actually. Yeah, so an authentically grim poll on husbands uh, in the interweb. Uh, so, uh, so you can have a little fun with Google doing that kind of thing. But this question is it's fascinating, isn't it? Uh, what happens in Vegas? No, what happens after I die, right? It's something that people wrestle with. It's something that people grapple with. It's uh, something that challenges us. And, uh, and I think uh, some of you who've come to a place of faith and faith in Jesus have, have come to a satisfying answer about that, but some of you who haven't yet come to faith in Jesus are, are, are probably asking that question, uh, what, what, what it's about. And there's lots of questions. Uh, one of the resources that I often point people to is just a book by a guy named Mark Clark, and I've drawn some of the content from this sermon from there, so I want to just disclose that. Pastors aren't really smart. We read books. Um, but uh, there's, there's just some great resources there if you're wrestling with those questions, if you're wrestling with the big questions of life. Uh, and there's a lot of questions that, that we wrestle with about uh, Christianity and about whether we're thinking we might want to follow Jesus or wondering whether uh, this whole thing is real, right? Uh, we, people ask questions, does God exist? Why is there evil and suffering? What about hell? What about uh, sexuality, right? That's a linchpin issue for people in our culture is what the church thinks about sexuality. Uh, what about science? Or what about hypocrisy in the church? Uh, can you even trust the Bible? Or what, why is the Christian scene so exclusive? Uh, those are all big questions. And, and for me as a young person, I had to kind of bottom those out and satisfy uh, myself with answers to those questions to make uh, my intellectual life match with my experience of knowing Jesus. Uh, but what it really came down to for me, and I think what it comes down to for all of us is this question, who was Jesus? 
who was Jesus? Uh, because that question, uh, if, if you bottom out who Jesus is and you begin to figure out who he is and begin to realize uh, the kind of life he lived, the kind of death he died, and begin to grapple with questions about the resurrection, uh, then you know that Jesus' life can't have been what it was unless there was a God. Jesus' life can't have been what it was unless uh, there's some connection with the scriptures. So there's all kinds of places that you can start your journey of seeking, your journey of questioning, but I, I think the question that's really, really important, and the one that we're going to tackle today is this question of who was Jesus. And it's an important uh, question for a couple of other reasons. Uh, one, millions and millions of humans uh, from every culture on the planet, uh, every nation on the planet, claim to have an interactive, ongoing relationship with this person. So we're not just claiming uh, that we have uh, come to an intellectual uh, framework that fits within the Christian worldview. What we're saying is that, that we have had an experience with the love of Jesus. And so just take a second, just look around the room. Uh, there's, you know, some of you might be believers, some of you might not be believers, but if you look beside you, there's engineers and business owners and PhDs in this room who uh, claim to have an experience of Jesus. And same with our baptismal candidates, wonderful young people. So you have to grapple with the fact that there are, uh, there's, there's over a billion Christians on the planet who claim to know this person and to have a relationship with them. So if you're here and you're, you're, you might be in a place, you might be an atheist or agnostic and you might have uh, Christianity just written right off, uh, just a strong encouragement for you to say, hey, uh, these are not, you know, really dumb people. <laughs> like look to the person beside you and say, you're not dumb. You know, you're not dumb. Like these are smart people who believe this and smart people who have had this experience with Jesus. So, so it's good to grapple with it. Um, but, I, but I also want to present the evidence because for me as a young person, I'd had this experience with, you're still talking about each other being dumb. Um, I'd had this experience with Jesus and then I had to make sense of it. I had to make sure I wasn't off my, my rocker. I grew up in the church, but I had to, to verify. I had to bottom it out. So I did the research. I read the Quran. I read the Bhagavad Gita. Uh, I read, um, you know, other philosophies and all kinds of different things to sort of bottom out, hey, was this Jesus experience an authentic experience? Does this make sense of the world and the way it actually is? I'm a naturally skeptical person by nature, so I wanted to bottom that out. And so one of the questions that, that need to be bottomed out for, for some of us, and if you're a believer, you're like, oh man, here we are on apologetics, I'm already in, why is he telling me this stuff? But you need to be able to communicate these things with your friends, because like when I was in high school, I went to high school right here in this place, uh, I, had a, I had a teacher who told me that Jesus was just a myth, that, that he, he didn't even exist, that he never actually walked on the earth, that he was just a figment of somebody's imagination, and the Christians had invented him. So it's important for us to even answer the question of the historicity of Jesus. Bart Ehrman is a, is a scholar uh, who was a, a Christian, but now he's an agnostic, so he's fallen from the faith. It's always good when you're making a case to make a case from the quotes of your critics. I think that's a, that's a, a wise thing. So this is a person that's actually hostile to Christianity. But he says this, of course Jesus actually existed. There's more evidence for the existence of Jesus Christ than there is for the founder of any other religious group in history. We just have reams and reams of documents and writing and manuscript that point to the existence of Jesus Christ. I want to just point you to a couple of pieces of evidence just for the fact that Jesus exists. And that first piece is just that there are first century writers who lived in or near the time of Jesus. 
Um, and most of them with like an anti-Christian bias. They might have been Jewish writers or Roman writers wondering about this crazy sect of Christians. Some of their names, Josephus, Tacitus, Mar Barsapian, uh, Pliny the Younger, Philo, Celis, um, are all people who speak about Jesus and this group of Christians in their writings. But Tacitus says this, Tacitus lived quite close to the time of Jesus uh, in the life of Nero. He said, Nero fastened the guilt uh, for the fires in Rome on a class hated for their abominations called Christians by the populace. Christus, from whom the name had its origin, suffered the extreme penalty, crucifixion, during the reign of Tiberius at the hands of the Procurator. Procurator Pontius Pilate. Right, so this is just a historical document. This is just a piece of history saying, hey, this guy was lived on the earth, the Christians are around, he died under Pontius Pilate, and they know the dates and the times and the places where this actually happened. Right, so historians recognize this. Josephus is now a Jewish historian. He says, about this time there lived Jesus, a wise man, if indeed one ought to call him a man, for he wrought surprising feats. And this is a Jewish historian, if indeed we can call him a man, because Josephus heard the stories. Jesus was doing crazy stuff, right? Um, when Pilate condemned him to be crucified, those who had come to love him did not give up their affection for him. On the third day he appeared, restored to life, and the tribe of Christians has not disappeared. 2,000 years later, the tribe of Christians has not yet disappeared. Amen. Right? We're in the house. We're in the house. So that's one important thing. Like historians actually wrote about this person and talked about him. Another important idea is just the rise of the early church. The church really couldn't have or wouldn't have become what it became. It wouldn't have uh, risen to uh, the population that it rose to. Approximately uh, by the time like of 311 AD, an estimated 32 million people were followers of Jesus. Now people don't uh, follow and grow like uh, a movement at that kind of radical pace. And this is a movement that didn't grow by the edge of the sword. It didn't grow uh, politically up until the point of the uh, Edict of Milan when Christianity was actually formally allowed as a legal religion within the empire. That's what the Edict of Milan is. So up until that point, it grew contrary to the wishes of the governing powers in the time and the day. And in that time, you know, 32 million people began to follow Jesus in a culture that was extremely hostile to them. But they began to follow him. And just to give you an idea of how hostile, uh, they were literally, they were thrown uh, to the lions, uh, damnatio bestias. They were uh, drawn, that means they were tied up between two horses and stretched, and then having limbs chopped off under, when their bodies were under tension. They were stoned, sawed in half, whipped, beaten, burned, fried on pans, that's a particularly gruesome one, beheaded, drowned, and this last one here is ex exposed to disease, and that's actually something Christians did to themselves. It's part of a testimony to the incredible generosity of Christians and the reality that they believed with all their hearts that, that, their, uh, that they didn't need to fear death. They were the first in to plague areas and areas of sickness, treating people who were wounded. Like thousands and thousands of Christians just gave their lives uh, out, of, out of generosity to care for people who were contagious. They just gave their lives. They just did it because they weren't afraid of death. You don't endure all of this for a lie. Right? You don't endure all of this for something that is made up. Part of the case for the incredible uh, reality of the person of Jesus is that if he'd been made up, who would have bothered dying for this lie? 
Nobody would have died for that, right? Uh, in, in 1 Corinthians, Paul recognizes this. He's presenting evidence uh, for the life of Jesus. He says this, if Christ had not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, then we are of all people most to be pitied. If our only hope is in how we live this life here and now, if our hope isn't attached to eternity, if it isn't attached to the resurrection, if it isn't attached to the reality that Jesus rose from the grave, then, then just living a slightly better life because Jesus taught us some rules, that's not worth dying for. That's not worth being tortured for. That's not worth being fried in pans for. Right? They weren't living just for a, for a tweak to their current lives. Right? They, weren't, they weren't doing that. If they had wanted to just tweak their current lives, they wouldn't have endured to the point of having those little tweaked lives like ripped from them. Bamboo under their fingernails and fingers ripped off. Right? That's not a tweak. That's not a life improvement. Just a note to us as Christians, right? If you think Christianity is like a fitness club, like a little self-improvement club, I think it's a lot more than that. There's, there's more commitment to Christianity for us to understand. So, so the, the church grew and Jesus existed and we know it because of what's written about him and we know it by how Christians lived. Another important question in that is, is the Bible actually a trustworthy source? Can we actually trust what the Bible said? about Jesus. Uh, and just hang with me as we, as we just look at this. Uh, transmission accuracy uh, of the biblical texts uh, from what was to, to what we have now is, has been like statistically just incredibly accurate. Uh, what you see on your screen there is a picture of the Isaiah scroll. It's a scroll that was found in the Dead Sea Scrolls uh, that was written some, some time before the time of Christ, probably around 300 uh, BC. Uh, previously, the most recent copy of Isaiah that we had was a thousand years after that, so written sometime in the 700s. So we had this text that we were translating the scripture from, from the book of Isaiah, uh, that we had. We would go back, scholars would look at it from the 700s, and that's what your Bible that you hold in your hand was translated from up until a certain point. When they found the Dead Sea Scrolls, they had this text to translate from, and, and it was almost identical, apart from just like a few little spelling mistakes. Nothing that substantially changed the meaning of the text at all. Over a thousand years that this book of Isaiah was transmitted, we have a gap and we have two examples, a thousand years apart with extreme accuracy between them. Now, some of you have been told in your university degree or in your uh, in your high school degree, that the Bible is just a collection of things. We don't have any manuscripts. We don't have anything uh, to know. Christians just sort of made this thing up. Why could you trust this thing? Well, we have evidence to say that we have something that was handed down to us accurately. Uh, scribes worked in teams on this to ensure accuracy, right? So when you're talking about the Bible and it being written, this book of Isaiah, how it's being copied and transmitted year after year after year, how is this thing transmitted? Well, it's not some dude in his basement, in his mother's basement, like working on it, right? By himself with a, with a scrawny t-shirt on, right? 
not some guy who's beer swilling in his basement doing this. These were uh, professional scribes, and they would write literally. One person would be writing and copying the text, and there would be one person over this shoulder and another person over this shoulder watching every stroke of the pen to ensure that it was copied accurately. And if there was something that was inaccurate in it, that other guy would say, hey, stop. We've got to stop. We either got to throw this out or we've got to make a notation and a correction. You've got to sign your name to it. There's this mistake. Let's go forward. Let's move on. Let's keep going. So a passion for accuracy in the way these were copied. Same thing true in the monasteries uh, in the Christian era. Uh, just, an, just an amazing attention to detail. So one of the things, how many of you have heard about the scriptures and how there's so much contradiction in them? There's verses that are, that are contradicting other verses and parts of the story that are contradicting. How many of you have heard that from teachers, profs? Right, like throw out the Bible, it's a piece of junk, like there's contradictions all over it. I want to just show you a couple of examples of some of these contradictions. Uh, Matthew chapter 28, uh, or sorry, chapter 27, 5, it's the story of the, of, of the death of Judas. Matthew, in his account, he says he went and hanged himself. In the book of Acts, Luke's account, Acts chapter 118, it says, falling, he burst open and his bowels rushed out. And so people would say, okay, which was it? The Bible's inaccurate. It's, in true. it's untrue. How can we trust that? Is that a contradiction? No. He hung. When they cut him down, his bowels burst. It's two different perspectives on the same story. Both of those things uh, happen. These are complementary tales. When you're telling a story uh, to somebody about what's going on in your life, do you tell the exact same details to every person? Right? When you're a kid, you're coming home from school, uh, your dad picks you up and says, uh, hey, how was your day at school? And you say, man, I had an awesome time at basketball practice. It was fantastic. And then you get home and your mom asks you, hey, how was your day at school? And you know your mom's excited about math and wants you to do well. And so you say to your mom, hey, mom, I, I had a great time in math class. I learned so much. It was fantastic. Well, which was it? Are you lying? No, you're telling different parts of the same story uh, that you think are going to be important to the person you're telling them to. And almost every one of those things that's a contradiction in the scriptures or seems like it's a contradiction in the scriptures is chalked up to just different writers looking at the story, hearing different eyewitness accounts and telling perspectives on it. Uh, here's another example in Matthew. Uh, the women came to the uh, tomb to uh, see Jesus and they realized he wasn't there. And Mary says this, he says, but the angels, or, or then Matthew says this, he says, but the angels said to the women, one angel. Uh, when we get to John chapter 20, John is saying, telling the story. He's saying there were two angels sitting uh, where the body of Jesus had lain. Is that a contradiction? Were there one angel or two angels? Well, there were two angels. But when John tells the story, he's not concerned about telling you the number of angels there were, right? He's telling you what one of the angels said, Right? And for uh, the writer John, or sorry, Matthew uh, was telling you what the angel said. And for the writer John, he's like, it's really important that we know that one was at his feet and one was at his head because John is painting a scene in his context of what that looked like. He wants you to know what it looked like when Mary went in, right? So he's not giving you the detail. He's not telling you what the angel said. So both of those things are different perspectives on the same story. And almost everything that you look at in the scriptures that you think is contradictory uh, is actually a simple one of those. And we have an incredible uh, ability to trust the accuracy and the reliability of these documents. I want to just give you some examples of some other historical documents that exist uh, that people actually look at and say, hey, these are historically accurate. They give us an accurate window into what happened in the ancient world. Uh, there's, there's a document uh, that's essentially from a a history teacher, a guy named, 
I don't know how to pronounce it. Um, and essentially, we have eight manuscripts of this document that were transcribed, and they're removed from the events by 1,300 years. Eight documents, 1,300 years, historically accurate. Aristotle's Poetics, five copies, removed 1,400 years after uh, the events considered historically accurate. Uh, Caesar's Gaelic Wars, uh, 10 manuscripts dated 900 years after Caesar's day, considered historically accurate. New Testament manuscripts, 5,800. Some of them from within 100 years of the date they were written. Right, these were written sometime after the death of Christ. 5,800. Uh, fragments and pieces of manuscripts. Uh, 9,300 manuscripts that got translated into all kinds of other different languages. Uh, 10,000 manuscripts later into Latin. And people say, oh no, that can't be historical, that can't be right. But we've got no problem with uh, Aristotle, right? So what you're looking at there is Papyrus 46, uh, which is 2 Corinthians chapter 11:33. And if you're looking at a more literal translation of the Bible, if you read the NASB or the ESV, uh, what you're seeing is actually a word-for-word -word translation. The scholars looked at this piece of paper when they translated the Bible that's in your hand. We have something incredibly rich and beautiful and accurate that we can trust. Uh, the second uh, thought that's really important there is there's a proximity to eyewitnesses that is really key. Right, like uh, these books of the Bible were dated very, very close uh, to the time the events happened, sometimes like 25 years ago, right? So uh, the, the book of Acts is written sometime 25 years after some of the events that happened in the book of Acts. Just think back 25 years, what can you remember? What happened in, what would that be? 2004, no? 2014, I don't know. Okay, I should have done the math. <laughs> Not my strong suit. <laughs> What? Tell me. 94. What happened in 1994? Like, do you remember? Was, was it Bill Clinton or was that the year after Bill Clinton? Uh, Blue Jays, somewhere around that ballpark. Blue Jays won the World Series. 93. People who know dates. I don't know dates. I stink at dates. The Toronto Blessing, 1994. So, so do you guys remember stuff that happened? I remember I was married in 1993. Right? Woo! Right, I think I remember who was there. She reminds me every year of the date, which is really great. It's fantastic, um, right? Like, like, you remember that, right? So what if somebody had made some of this stuff up and wrote it down in a book and passed it around for everybody to read and it wasn't inaccurate? Would those books have gained any traction whatsoever? I was like, dude, you're making this up. Like, throw that thing out. But they wrote the books uh, close to the time they were written and the people that read them verified them and passed them on to other people as accurate documents. And they were valued treasured texts that come all the way forward to us today because those who read them uh, valued them. And if you look at the history, like the names of the people are in that. Like the authors, if they'd been making something up, they wouldn't have put the names of the people who were, they were there. They would have said a woman came to the uh, tomb of Jesus and saw that it was empty. It, if they didn't want anybody to go back and talk to Mary about it, if they'd been lying. They wouldn't want them to go and verify and talk to the eyewitnesses, right? But they did. They wanted them to see. They wanted them to know. They wanted people to verify. And we see that all through uh, the New Testament. Uh, there's an incredible book that is just, I haven't even read it. It's just too intense and too academic. Like, I'm like, my brain is like blown. But it's called Jesus and the Eyewitnesses. And it tracks all of these uh, relationships and people and connections. And, and when he writes this in that book, he's saying, okay, you got to go talk to that person because that person is Jesus.
Jesus' cousin, and he was there, he knew what was happening, right? So the, the apostles are writing, wanting us to verify. So we can trust the book. Uh, what did it say in the book? There's this next question about the person of Jesus. Again, we're going fast. I know it's long, but stick with me. I know it's a little bit more academic, but it's so worth it. should be able to begin to say these things to people that we love. Did Jesus claim to be God is the next question, right? Because how many of you have heard that in your undergrad work, right? Right? Jesus didn't even claim to be God. Like Paul made that up afterwards. How many of you heard that? Right? That's something that we've heard, something we hear in high school, something we hear people teach. But Jesus did claim to be God. There's, there's all kinds of evidence, all kinds of times when he talked about his godness. Now, he never actually said the words, hey, by the way, I am God, just thought you should know. But he said other things that make it clear, and he did other things that make it clear. One, he claimed to have come from heaven in John 3, and he did that in multiple places. He spoke of God as, and he being one. He teaches people to pray to him. He accepts people worshiping him. He claims Old, Te Old Testament titles used for Yahweh, Shepherd of Israel, Alpha and Omega. He accepted people saying those to him, and he, he received them. He didn't correct them. was charged for blasphemy uh, by his enemies. Uh, so all of his enemies were pretty sure he was calling himself God, right? Right, or they wouldn't have been cranky with him, right? Right? He was charged for blasphemy. Uh, he does things that only God can do. He, he speaks about forgiving sins, and he heals the sick. Uh, John 8 says this, and this is just one of the prime examples of Jesus saying something that really points to the idea that he thought he was God. Your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. And this is when he was uh, asked questions by, by critics. He saw it and was glad. So the Jews said to him, you're not yet 50 years old, and you're saying you've seen Abraham? And Jesus says this, like, it's crazy. He says, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. Right? And that would have been like an immediate trigger for them. Right? Because they would know the story of Moses in the burning bush, where God refers to himself as I am that I am. How many of you remember that old movie, Prince of Egypt? Right? I am that I am. God is. He exists. And so, uh, Jesus claimed that for himself. And then their response is telling, isn't it? They picked up stones uh, to throw at him. They wanted to kill him. Well, why did they want to kill him if he wasn't being blasphemous, if he wasn't communicating to them that he thought he was God? Right? And that was the whole center, the whole nature of, of the controversy around Jesus is that he was claiming to be God. That's why they wanted to take him out. So you see, we're just, what we're trying to do here is we're trying to help you grapple with, with the idea that this is not just a myth that we're talking about. This is not crazy talk. This is not a made-up thing that there is uh, actual, uh, rational, uh, historical uh, understanding that we can look to to see and say, authentically, these things happen. Uh, Philippians 2, uh, 5 to 1, I'm just going to go through that fast. But Jesus said, who being, or uh, Paul said to the Philippians, talking about Jesus, who being in very nature God. So the people who followed Jesus believed he was God. Uh, and he talks about Jesus Christ being Lord, and we see that all through Paul's writings as well. And we see that in the writings of the early church fathers. People believed that Jesus was God. So the next question is this, did the resurrection actually happen? And that's the big one. Right? Did the resurrection happen? So we, we know now that, uh, that he was a real person. And we know now that we can trust some of what the Bible says about him. Uh, and so we're left with this question, did this thing actually happen? Did the resurrection actually happen? And there's really only three solid objections to this uh, historically. Uh, there's three, only, only three possibilities. Uh, one of them is that Jesus just didn't, really didn't die. That they took him, they crucified him. 
Uh, and then they eventually took him down from the cross and they, uh, you know, buried him in some shallow grave and he got up <coughs> and got up and started walking around and talking to his disciples, right? There's just no way. Like, like we have in the story, like the Romans process, and we have that in all kinds of other documents, what crucifixion was and how they did it. Romans were really, really, really good at killing people. They excelled at it. They were highly professional soldiers, right? And so they would take somebody who was crucified, and once they had died, they wanted to make absolutely sure they would break their legs or they would stab a spear into their heart. And we hear in the story of Jesus that they, they put the spear into his heart and it says the blood and water flowed to show that his uh, pericardium had, was full of water, and we know that water drained out of him. Like, he died. He absolutely died. And this picture that you're seeing on your screen is just one of many kind of relics, but it's a relic that has uh, actually a picture of a nail. Or it's actually a nail that's been driven through a bone that's been preserved, and they actually have it in a museum, right? So the, the, the nail was preserved, the bone was preserved, and that's through an ankle bone. Um, we, we just know that Romans did that. Uh, the second objection is just that the whole thing is fake news. The disciples faked it. So Jesus really died, but the disciples faked the resurrection, right? That's the other thing. And, and we see uh, Peter addressing that in his uh, conversation, and we see that in, in the Gospels as well. Uh, what if this was something that was faked? Well, there's, there's a couple of just logical things that sort of lead us to the idea that this wouldn't be faked. One, if you're faking a story like this, would you paint uh, such an unflattering picture of yourself as the person who's faking it? So Peter... If you're writing this story and you're trying to fake this story about you, uh, your Savior being resurrected, would you be writing in this story about how you denied him three times? Right? You see this, this doubt and the, and the shame, and we see the disciples running. We see all this kind of stuff. If you're writing a story about uh, you, how great you are because your Savior is resurrected, you just skip all the parts uh, that, uh, that, that speak badly about you, Right? The other thing you do in that time in that culture is you don't include the women in the story as your key eyewitnesses. In that time and place, women wouldn't even been allowed to have their testimony heard in a court of law. Right? So you leave out that part where it's the women that go and find the body of Jesus Christ. But they didn't leave it out because that's what happened. If they were faking it, they would have made it up that somebody else had done it because they would want that story to stand strong, but no, their integrity and, and their desire for authenticity was, hey, we gotta tell the story as it happened and honor the women who were there to see this, right? Um, and then, of course, there's this other evidence. If you're making up a story like that, why would you, why would you die for the lie? Like, you've, you've, you've questioned your kids about stuff that they've done wrong, right? You put up the pressure, okay, 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 we're gonna take away the PS4. Okay, we're going to take away, uh, you know, this, that, that. We're going to change. You got to do the chores. You got to do this. And eventually you ramp up the pressure and they crack, right? <laughs> well, you crack and you tell the story that, that, that it's a lie when they're ripping out your fingers, right? These people held on to this thing while they were being torn apart, thrown into the lion's den, put on frying pans, burned at the stake, beheaded. None of them recanted the story and said, oh, no, this didn't happen. Don't you imagine that we would have had people like bailing left, right, and center if they didn't believe this thing? They believed it because they saw it, because they witnessed it. And the third objection is just this, they, they went to the wrong tube. They got the wrong address. They forgot to Google it. 
<laughs> right? Like, like this is the dumbest objection ever, right? Uh, why tell the story of the angels? Uh, the women were the ones who embalmed Jesus and put him there. They're not likely to have forgotten where it was. Like, come on. Like, they were really there. And again, if, if they'd done that and gone to the wrong place, why wouldn't the Roman soldiers have said, hey, it's over here, here's the body. Uh, let's correct it and let's prove to you that he hasn't been resurrected, right? But there was no body to find. Christianity falls apart if we find the body. But nobody found the body. He rose from the grave. And thousands and thousands and thousands of people were burned at the stake, had their heads ripped off, fingernails torn out, fried on pans because they believed that it happened. It's something that happened. And so we have to grapple with this question. If it happened, if it really happened, what does it mean? What does it mean for us? And, and I encourage you to just examine the evidence. I've given you just like, just like the lightest taste, like just a tiny touch. But there is so much evidence for what Jesus has done. So if it happens and you look at the evidence and you come to the conclusion, as so many scholars have, that this actually uh, happened, what does it mean? And, and what it means is this, is that you uh, can no longer remain neutral or ambivalent about Jesus. You can't just say, hey, he was just some historical figure. He's not important to my life. Because if he rose from the grave with all that he taught and all that he said, with the, his resurrection and an incredible community of followers to verify it, then we have to very seriously consider following too. You don't ignore the guy that was resurrected. <laughs> right? Come on. You don't ignore that guy. You listen to what that guy has to say. You listen to what he has to say. Uh, C.S. Lewis went through this in his life, and, and you've heard this quote. Uh, it's sort of one of the most often used quotes in terms of apologetics. But I, but I think it's just said so well, you just can't help but return to it again and again. Uh, Jesus is saying, uh, C.S. Lewis is saying this about Jesus in his book, Mere Christianity. A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things that Jesus said wouldn't be just somebody you could write off as a great moral teacher. Uh, he would either be a lunatic on the level with someone who says he's a poached egg, or else he would be the devil of hell. He would be either loony or evil. Right? Remember what Jesus said? Remember what Jesus said about himself? He claimed to have come from heaven. He spoke of he and God as being one. He taught people to pray to him. Look at those things are, are, are either blasphemy or they're benefits to us. Right? What if Jesus is a person to whom we can pray and to whom we can have an authentic relationship with? What if Jesus is a person who was God, who walked the face of the earth, and we have his story written down? We can know how he lived. We know who God was by seeing who Jesus was. If you want to know what God is like, you look at the story of Jesus. He shows us who he is. Uh, he accepts worship. We can have an intimate relationship with him. He is our shepherd. He is the beginning and the end, the creator of the whole, whole universe. We get a window into the life of the creator of the universe and relationship with him through Jesus. Uh, he does things that only God can do. He forgives us our sins and he heals us when we're sick. And some of you have experienced uh, amazing healings. And Amber, ask Amber about praying for Mo this week. Right? Our, our precious Mo was in the hospital and, uh, and 
and is experiencing, at least so far, something that we would call almost a miraculous recovery um, from, from, from his illness. We, were, we thought we were going to be burying him sometime about now. And he's thriving and he's, he's waking up. We've seen miracle after miracle. I've seen blind eyes opened. Here now, this day and in our time, because this person, Jesus, is alive. He is alive. And he loves you. And so you've got to make your choice. This is C.S. Lewis still talking. Either this man was and is the son of God or else he's a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool. You can spit at him and call him a demon. You can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let's not come to him with any patronizing nonsense about his simply being a great human teacher. He's not left that open to us. He did not intend to. You have to grapple with this person, Jesus, and who he was and what he did and begin to ask yourself the question, is this person someone that I need to follow because of what he is and what he's done? Do I need to begin to follow Jesus? And if you're already a follower of Jesus, do you need to follow him a little harder than you have? a little more seriously than ha- you have? Has he been someone who's just in your background, in your rearview mirror, somebody you knew when you were younger? Or do you need to put yourself behind him and begin to track, begin to track with him and let him grow you and transform you and change you and make you new? And that was my story. It's a really nice picture of me in grade 11 or something, I don't know, 12. You can see my Adam's apple, I had one back then. Uh, it's been it's been surgically removed since uh, that time, <laughs> or cosmetically it is no longer. If I go like this, then you can start to see I have an Adam's apple. I put on one or two pounds since then. That was my uh, story, right? Like I had this incredible encounter with Jesus when I was uh, in grade eleven. I was a Christian kid. I grew up in, in church. Um, I, I gave my life to the Lord at a Baptist camp when I was 12 years old. I sort of felt his presence at that time. But I was, at that point, you know, sort of drifting. I'd moved to a new school. I'd come here to Carlton Place High School, living essentially two lives, a life for youth group and church and another life uh, for the high school. When my friends would ask me, hey, where were you on the weekend? I was worshiping Jesus with my friends at youth group, but I was, I was hanging with my friends in the city at Canada Baptist, but I left out that part, <laughs> right? Two different lives. And Jesus came on December 23rd into my room and spoke to me in, in a radical way and called me to ministry and called me to begin to follow him. And I had this heart encounter with Jesus where I felt uh, like, honestly, I, I don't know how to describe that, that encounter with Jesus except that I felt like an absolute worm. I felt like he could see every sinful thing in me, every broken thing in me. He knew every lie I told. He'd known everything I'd done, and he could see it. And I was in the presence of a mighty, holy, amazing God. And I felt like absolute dirt. And simultaneously, with equal intensity, I felt absolutely accepted and loved. Absolutely accepted and loved. He saw everything about me, all of my brokenness, all of my pain, all of my hurt, all of my sin. And he absolutely 
loved me. And I knew in that moment again that he had died on the cross for my sins and that he had come and been resurrected to give me new life and reminded me and called me to continue to tell this story and preach this story and let people know that Jesus loves them. He loves you. He loves you. He wants relationship with you. He wants to know you. He wants you to follow him. He wants you to worship him. He wants you to have intimacy with him. He wants to be your very best friend. And we have historical evidence that says that makes sense. And so you want to feel it in your heart and let him come into your life and dwell inside of you. And accept the truth of who he is. But don't leave him in your rearview mirror. Grapple with him. Accept him. Accept the gift of love that he has offered to you. Let's stand. Father, I pray for every person here who has not decided to follow you. I pray that each one here who is grappling with these big questions would feel in this moment when they go home, uh, wherever they are, that they would feel uh, and experience a moment of your love for them, that they would know that you care for them deeply and intimately, that you know about their lives, that you see them, that you value them, that you want them. Reveal yourself to folks today. Come Holy Spirit. Come Holy Spirit. And for those that feel that drawing of your presence and have seen enough evidence to know that they might be able to follow you, would you just give them the courage to just take a step this morning and just say yes to you? There might still be questions, there might be still things to figure out, but, but for those who know that, that they can take a step, would you give them courage to take that step? To experience the joy and beauty of life with you. Call some of your family home today, Lord, I pray. And for those of us who have been wishy-washy about our faith, for those of us who have uh, considered you this vaguely distant historical figure of, of questionable relevance to our lives, would you come front and center for us and call us to the mission in a fresh and new way? Call us to follow you, the resurrected one who died for us, and recommit us, recommit our hearts to this journey. Commit us to the work of facilitating community. Uh, commit our hearts to the work of evangelism. Commit our hearts uh, to the work of loving the poor. Commit our hearts to speaking of you in our schools and in our workplaces and in our homes.
Let's not be ashamed and not be afraid. Call us out, Jesus, we pray. In your holy name, amen. Thanks for joining us. To connect to the ministries of Ottawa Valley Vineyard, visit ovv.ca.